Well, today we're going to launch into an expositional study of the book of Esther, which is one of my all-time favorite stories in the Old Testament, and uh, appreciate your um, encouragement from last week, uh, just the message I preached about the nuts and bolts of expository preaching, and I knew there was going to be some smart aleck that came out and said that was the best topical message I ever heard on expositional preaching. And I got quite a number of you saying that, and you guys are sharp. I appreciate that. But uh, you have, hopefully, somewhere within your um, reach, a little overview of the book of Esther, and I want to encourage you to grab a copy so you have one to keep with you, and perhaps you could open up to the book of Esther and stick it right there uh, in the first chapter as something that we can reference uh, over the next 10 weeks as we study this great book together. And uh, I'll be referencing this in, in different ways uh, this morning and throughout the, the series, but uh, just wanted to give you the big picture uh, of the book. I know for me this is very helpful to get my mind around a, an entire book of the Bible, to have to put it in a, you know, have to put a title on it, have to uh, really state the theme and then what are the key verses, and then a simple outline. Again, applying some of the same things we talked about last week about the importance of a, of a thesis statement or the theme, to be able to say it in a sentence or two, and then how do you break it up in an outline form. And uh, I know it's, for me it just helps it clarify things in my mind, so hopefully I can make them clear uh, in your minds as well. Well, before getting into the story of Esther, I want to share with you one of my other favorite stories, and it goes like this. The only survivor of a shipwreck was washed up on a small uninhabited island. He prayed fervently for God to rescue him. Every day, he scanned the horizon for help, but none seemed forthcoming. Exhausted, he eventually managed to build a little hut out of driftwood to protect himself from the elements and store what he had salvaged from the wreckage. And one day, after scavenging for food, he arrived home to find his little hut in flames with smoke rolling up into the sky. He felt the worst had happened, that everything had been lost. He was overwhelmed with grief and despair, and he cried out angrily to God, how could you do this to me? That night, he fell asleep on the open beach, having abandoned all hope. Early the next day, he was awakened by the sound of a ship approaching the island. It had come to rescue him. And as soon as the rescuers arrived on the beach, he asked them, how did you know I was here? And they replied, we saw your smoke signal. Well, this story often reminds me whenever I feel like my hut's on fire. And... Uh, Rather than being discouraged and giving in to grief and despair, I need to be confident that God will somehow cause this bad situation I'm in to work out for my good and in a way where he gets the most glory, which is really what ultimately matters, amen? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. Well, Esther is another story that God often used to remind me to trust him when I find myself in some disheartening, frustrating, or threatening situation. I mean, talk about your hut being on fire. God's people were faced with a vicious plot that threatened to wipe them out. And the book of Esther records the, 
God's providential preservation of the exiled Jews who remained in Persia after King Cyrus had conquered Babylon and declared that the Jews could return to their homeland after being there uh, for 70 years of captivity. And yet despite Cyrus's decree and the urging of Isaiah and Jeremiah, who were the prophets in that day, the majority of the Jews chose to stay in Persia rather to endure the rigors of that small remnant that returned to their homeland to rebuild the wall, uh, excuse me, the walls and to rebuild the temples of Jerusalem. And despite their continued disobedience, God was still faithful to his promise to preserve them as a nation. And he used an ordinary Jewish girl named Esther and her wise cousin Mordecai to rescue the Jews from being annihilated. King Ahasuerus, who was the grandson of King Cyrus, banished his queen, Queen Vashti, because she refused to flaunt her beauty before the drunken partygoers at one of his many lavish feasts. And after a two-year search for Vashti's replacement, Ahasuerus chose Esther as his queen. Well, Ahasuerus' most trusted advisor, Haman, hated the Jews and tricked Ahasuerus into ordering their massacre by the hands of the Persians. And when Mordecai heard about Haman's devious plan, he appealed to Esther that perhaps she had become the queen of Persia for the very purpose of delivering her fellow Jews. And if there was a, a key verse... In the book of Esther, it would have to be chapter 4, verse 14. You can turn there and look at this verse with me. Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai said, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not attained royalty for such a time as this. You may want to underline that phrase, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Maybe put some brackets around that or a little star around that to remind you that that is the, 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 the key verse uh, of this book. And so Mordecai challenged Esther to approach the king and plead with him on behalf of her people even though it could have cost her her life to enter the king's presence uninvited. And so she courageously agreed, and when she entered the king's court, he extended his scepter to her. Based on the fact that his wife would risk her life to come before him, he knew something major must be troubling her, and so he promised to grant her whatever she requested up to half the kingdom. And rather than blurting out her request in front of everyone, she invited Ahasuerus and Haman to a private banquet. And when they arrived at the banquet, the king asked her again to reveal what was on her mind, and sensing the timing was not, still wasn't right, Esther invited them to a second banquet on the following day. That night, at the suggestion of his wife, Haman constructed a 75-foot spike on which to impale his nemesis Mordecai. And while Haman was toiling through the night, building that um, instrument of execution, Cyrus was trying to fall asleep, and he couldn't. And so he called for one of his servants to read the royal records, and rather than making him sleepy, it woke him up to the fact that he had never properly honored Mordecai for uncovering an assassination plot against him, which had saved his life. 
And so the next morning, he asked Haman, who had come bright and early to the palace to seek uh, Ahasuerus' permission to hang Mordecai, he asked him what he would suggest be done for the man he wanted to honor. Well, Haman, in his pride, presumed the king was referring to him, and so he proposed this elaborate parade in which he would get to wear the king's robe and ride the king's horse. And Ahasuerus thought it was a great idea and ordered Haman to do everything he proposed to, of all people, Mordecai. Haman was forced to honor the very man he wanted to kill. And so when Haman returned home in mourning and told his wife and advisors what had happened, they all agreed that this was a bad omen and that it was only a matter of time before he would fall before this Jewish man. Well, when Esther finally revealed Haman's deceptive scheme to her husband, he ordered for Haman to be impaled to death on the very same stake he had built to impale Mordecai. Furthermore, Ahasuerus decreed that the Jews could defend themselves on the day of their scheduled massacre, and they ultimately destroyed their enemies. And to commemorate their deliverance, they instituted the Feast of Purim, which is still celebrated by Jews to this day. That's the story of Esther in a nutshell. And what is unique about the story of Esther is that, it, that God is never mentioned anywhere in the book. And yet you can clearly see his hand working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes for his people. And what I think makes the book of Esther even more intriguing is that rather than using miraculous means to protect and provide for the Jews like he had done so many other times in the Old Testament, God chose instead to use ordinary means to fulfill his sovereign will for the Jewish exiles who remained in Persia. And I think this is what makes Esther one of the most practical and relevant books in the Old Testament for those of us who are God's people today. I mean, let's be honest. We all love to read the Old Testament stories of the miraculous, right? The burning bushes and the ten plagues and the parting of large bodies of water and, you know, fiery pillars that lead people around the wilderness and angelic visitors and food falling from the sky and earth swallowing up people alive and surviving a fiery furnace or a lion's den or seeing handwriting on a wall or the dreams and the visions that we read about in the Old Testament. But that's not the world in which we live. We, we can't relate to that. We live in the ordinary but mysterious world of Esther. And through every twist and turn of this dramatic and very ironic tale, God's presence and power are put on display as he preserves his people through a series of events that the unbelieving world would simply see as a bunch of coincidences. But as God's people, we should see these very same events, not as coincidences, but as the marvelous and mysterious workings of God's providence. Chuck Swindoll made this comment in his study guide on the book of Esther. He says, it's easy to see God in the miraculous. It's not easy to see him in the mundane. But that's where most of us live. This is all the more why we need to be sensitive and attentive to the subtle ways in which God works. And he said, no book will sharpen our spiritual senses more than Esther. And so studying Esther will serve 
to sharpen our spiritual perception as believers so we can more quickly and clearly recognize God's invisible hand at work in everything that happens to us. In other words, we we always need to be looking for the hand of providence. And if we're not looking for it, we're probably not going to see it. Buck Parsons, who is the editor of Table Talk magazine, which is uh, uh, Ligonier Ministries' uh, monthly devotional. Some of you, I I know, subscribe to that. Uh, The February edition, just a couple months ago, uh, February 2021, is simply titled Providence. And uh, I would encourage you, you can go online and and read it for free. You can just download it. And uh, some really good articles in there about the subject of providence. But this is how he opens up that, uh, that devotional. He said, quote, how often do Christians speak of the providence of God in connection with extraordinary things while failing to recognize God's providence in all the little things in life? We must recognize that everything that happens in all of creation is in some way the result of God's providence. And so hopefully we'll become quicker at recognizing God's invisible hand. What's more, as we study the book of Esther, I think it will help us learn to rest in and rejoice in God's providence. To rest in it and to rejoice in it, especially when we find ourselves in what appear to be desperate, hopeless situations and we're tempted to ask, where is God in all this? I'm sure that's what the Jews in Persia were tempted to think when they were faced with Haman's holocaust. But when it was all said and done, what Haman meant for evil, God meant for what? Good. Genesis 50, 20. Joseph's testimony, what you told his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And just because we can't see God at work doesn't mean he isn't busy working out everything for our good. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28, we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so you may be sitting here this morning overwhelmed by your present circumstances. Perhaps you feel like there's ominous storm clouds that have gathered over your life You're facing some life-threatening illness or perhaps the death of a loved one, a parent or your spouse. Maybe you're experiencing some chronic pain that your doctor says is untreatable. You're carrying some unbearable emotional stress at work. You're facing insurmountable challenges in your finances. You're at your wit's end with your kids. Your marriage is hanging on by a thread. You're dealing with some inexplicable circumstances, you're battling unrelentless temptation, you need to know that the hand of God is behind everything that is happening to you right now. And all the drama, the the ironies, the, the twists and turns of your life, the hurts and the pains and trials and temptations and, and offenses and the things you can't make sense of, you can be assured that God is behind it all and he's working out his sovereign purposes for your life. 
And there's no better reminder of that truth than the book of Esther. It's an unforgettable case study of God's providence for his people. In other words, how he works out everything for good in our lives. And sadly, the doctrine of of divine providence has been all but forgotten in our day by not just non-Christians, but but Christians even. I mean, in times past, people often spoke of their lives being in the hands of providence as a way of expressing their deep-rooted conviction that everything that came to pass in their lives was ordained by God. In fact, there's a There's a city in our country that goes by the name Providence. It's an interesting story how Providence, Rhode Island, was founded. It was founded by a a man named Roger Williams, who was a Puritan minister who showed up in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and uh, began to take a stand for the separation of church and state, what we take for granted now here in our country. Uh, and also confronted the fact that, that the, the British had just come in and, and essentially stolen the land from the Indians and hadn't given them proper payment for that. And these views or positions were considered or deemed dangerous uh, by the other leaders in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So this faithful Puritan minister was banished and he ended up taking a group of people and going and settling in this other place that we know today as Providence, Rhode Island. He decided to name, when he was thinking about what should I call this new place that I had to come to because I was banished, right, from uh, everyone else in the colonies, I'm going to call it Providence. Rarely do people refer to God's providence today like that. It's really an old-fashioned word which might even sound strange to uh, our modern ears, we've grown more accustomed to hearing and using words like, oh, that's a coincidence, or fluke, that was a fluke accident, or chance, that was a chance encounter, or uh, that was a random act of violence, or just the word luck. Man, I'm just going to tell you, the hair on the back of my neck stands up when somebody tells me good luck, especially when I'm about to go up and preach. That's the worst. When they say, hey, good luck, I'm like, are you even saved? I didn't say that, but I'm, I'm thinking that, right? Again, I'm being facetious there, but tongue-in-cheek there, we, we say those things, good luck, boy, he's lucky to be alive. Do we really believe it had, had to do with luck? R.C. Sproul, in his helpful book called The Invisible Hand, which, by the way, I have a copy of here. I wanted to show it to you, The Invisible Hand, Do All Things Really Work for Good?, uh, this, was a, this is an excellent resource I would highly recommend if you want to dive into the topic of God's providence. Um, uh, this is a trustworthy resource. I uh, would encourage you to, to uh, look at that uh, or get that. We have that in the resource center. I just borrowed this this morning to show you. Uh, I promise I'll bring it back. But this is what he said in this book. 
Quote, the word providence has all but disappeared from the vocabulary of the contemporary Christian. It is becoming obsolete and archaic. This word that was once commonplace, indeed central to Christian expression, now seems doomed to the ash heap of useless verbiage. But the word providence is too rich, too heavenly loaded with crucial theological nuance to allow it to pass from our language without a fight. It is a theological term of the highest import, a term rooted in the ageless content of Scripture. And so with the time that we have left this morning, I want to simply introduce the concept of God's providence in order to lay a theological foundation for our exposition of the book of Esther. And yes, this will be another topical message, getting us ready for our exposition of the book of Esther. But the entire book of Esther is devoted to establishing and exemplifying the doctrine of divine providence. And you may not be familiar with this, but the the term providence, like the word trinity, is never found in Scripture. It's, It's not there. You can't find the word trinity in the Bible, but we believe in the trinity, right? You can't find the word providence in the Bible, but we believe it's a biblical word. And it was coined by the church to summarize what the Bible teaches about how God governs and preserves and directs and sustains everything in the universe and how he is intricately involved in the affairs of nations and the affairs of individuals. And I want to invite you to look at some verses with me that that really form the basis for this concept of providence. Psalm 103, verse 19. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 104, verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. Psalm 139, Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And then look at the Proverbs for a moment, Proverbs 16, verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. In that same chapter, Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I always quote that when we play Yahtzee, that the Lord is, you know, deciding who's going to win. How about Proverbs 19, verse 21? Proverbs 19, verse 21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And then Proverbs 20, 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? And then moving into the prophets, Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah chapter 45, verses 6 and 7, God wants men to know from the rising of the 
to the setting of the sun, that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Verse 7, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then in the New Testament, just a few references here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, it says, the Father who is in heaven causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Chapter 6, verse 26 of Matthew, look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And then Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, still spot, talking about the birds here, are not two sparrows sold for a cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. I've used that passage to console my wife when a bird runs into our back window and knocks himself dead on our patio. And she asked me to come with tears to remove him, and I remind her, hey, that sparrow, God knows. It's okay. And there's a reason for it, right? How about Acts chapter 17? Acts chapter 17, verse 26, in Paul's sermon to the Areopagus there, says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Now how about Romans chapter 11 Verse 36, this pretty much says it all. Paul said, for from him and through him and to him are all things. It's either coming from the Lord or it's going to the Lord. It's, it's all the Lord. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 also, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then lastly, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, talking about Christ and how he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so the biblical evidence is overwhelming 
that God created and controls everything in the universe. People, animals, nations, weather patterns, catastrophic events, every detail of our lives, even evil itself. He uses it for his glory. And we see God's providence supremely played out in our redemption. That before the foundation of the world, God chose some out of all the hell-deserving sinners who would be saved and sent his son to die in their place to rescue and redeem them. And the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the most evil deed in the history of mankind, and yet it was ordained and orchestrated by God's providence. Acts chapter 2, a verse we're familiar with, verse 23, talking about Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet he adds, you nailed to a cross, right? He was nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So was it God's hands or human hands that was responsible for the death of Christ? Yes, (laughs) both. Acts chapter 4, verse 27, the apostles prayed this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So no one involved in Christ's death was forced by God to act against their wills. Rather, God brought about his plan through their willing choices for which they are nevertheless responsible. Luke 22, 22, this is what Jesus said about Judas. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. In other words, God the Father determined that his son would be crucified on the cross to make payment for man's sin, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, Judas is not off the hook. While God takes responsibility for the death of his son, he also places responsibility at the feet of those who killed him. Wayne Grudem has a helpful statement in his Bible doctrine Uh, book, uh, Systematic Theology, he said this, the number of passages that affirm this providential control of God is so considerable, it seems better to simply affirm that God causes all things that happen, but that he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results and for which we are held accountable. Exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices, Scripture simply does not explain to us. In other words, get over it. Don't overthink it. It's not there. And it may not make sense to our finite minds, but we have to accept it because we see both in Scripture. 
And it's truly a mystery how God is able to work out his will through our human wills without violating or coercing our wills. I came across an example. I'm not sure how helpful it might be, but here it goes anyway. As you consider a a cruise ship that is going from New York to England, the authorities have determined its destination is England. And on board that ocean liner, there's hundreds of passengers. They're not in chains, neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They're completely free to move about as they will. They eat, sleep, play, lounge about on the deck, read, talk, etc. Those of you that are cruisers know, right? You, you probably forgot what it was like, right? Because of COVID, you forgot what it was like to cruise, right? But they do whatever they please. But all the while, the cruise ship is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. Both sovereignty and freedom are present, and they do not contradict each other. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He says, so it is, I believe, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God. In other words, Tozer liked that analogy. The mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes. No one can dissuade him from his purposes. Nothing can turn him aside from his plans. The word providence comes from two Latin root words, pro, which means before or in front of, and video, which means to see. So providence literally means to see what? Beforehand. But the word providence is not merely a synonym for foreknowledge or predestination. We've talked about that on numerous occasions already. It really has more to do with God's provision, his protection, and his preservation of his people. Derek Thomas has written a helpful little book. And for those of you that this is too big, how's this look? Okay. What is providence? Very helpful little book, just kind of a, um, a little primer, if you will, on the providence of God. Just kind of wade into the shallow end a bit, and this is what he has to say. Quote, providence suggests God's care of the world, both his supervision of all events and circumstances and his provision for all of our needs. It is more than God's ability to see into the future. It is his active and determined care to ensure that what he has promised for us actually does come to pass. John Murray, in a book that he wrote called Behind a Frowning Providence, said this, quote, Providence is that marvelous working of God by which all the events and happenings in his universe accomplish the purpose he has in mind. While we're in definition mode, let me read for you the definition of God's providence found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Quote, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Again, a good reminder that if you're having a hard time 
getting your mind around this concept of providence, it's not about you anyway. It's all about God and his glory. It's not about you figuring it out. The Heidelberg Catechism defined providence in this way, quote, the almighty and ever-present power of God, whereby he still upholds, as it were, by his own hand, heaven and earth, together with all creatures, and rules in such a way that leaves, uh, that leaves and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and unfruitful years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and everything else come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So all that to say, God's providence is really the logical and practical overflow or outflow of his sovereignty. It's it's really sovereignty in action is what it is. God has sovereignly planned out everything that will happen in the universe from beginning to end. And he works out his sovereign plan for the world and for our lives through the means of providence. God not only sovereignly ordained all that would take place in the world and in our lives, but he's actively orchestrating every detail to accomplish his will for the world and for our lives. And he does that through his, what? Providence. And so when it comes to to managing the universe and managing our lives, God takes a a hands-on approach, if you will. Albeit his hand is often hidden. God's not just concerned with the big picture. He's interested and involved in the smallest details of our lives. And we we foolishly repeat that maxim, the devil is in the details, right? Well, the reality is, is God is the one who's in the details. In fact, you could liken God to a cosmic micromanager. He loves the details. Again, Thomas writes... He says it's in the details that we discern his hand of providence, ruling, directing, providing, sustaining, preventing, surprising. What may look catastrophic from one point of view will appear from another angle to be the outworking of a plan in which God is in full control. And like I said earlier, that when we're in the midst of of the crisis moment, it's, it's usually hard to see God's hand of providence. It's difficult to discern what God is up to in the heat of the moment. We're like, God, I don't get this. But typically after the trial is over and we're able to look back on it, everything becomes clear. That's what Puritan John Flavel meant by the mystery of providence. It wasn't miraculous. It's just mysterious. Another resource that I would recommend that we have in our resource center. It's called The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. If you like Puritan paperbacks, um, this one will give you a run for your money, okay? But I encourage you to consider that. But this is what he said, and I quote, sometimes providences like Hebrew letters must be read backward. And that's really what we're doing when we study the book of Esther. We have the benefit of looking backward at one of the greatest crises in the history of Israel and seeing what was impossible for them to see at that time. From their vantage point, God was nowhere to be seen, and yet he chose to remain hidden in the shadows. He acted like he was invisible, but just because he's invisible doesn't change the fact that he's invincible. 
And again, Chuck Swindoll says this, the invisible God who may appear to be absent is the invincible God who is working out his wise plan. And so really the lesson that we learn from the story of Esther is that when, when it seems like God is least present, he is most at work. When God seems least present, he is most at work. I mean, Joseph could have never fathomed what God was doing until it came into focus that God wanted an heir of the covenant to be in the most powerful position in Egypt when the famine engulfed Canaan, ensuring the survival of, of God's people. And he said in Genesis 45, we'll look at this in more depth in, in, the, in the weeks to come, that God put me here. You guys thought you were selling me off to slavery. No, God put me here to preserve you. J.I. Packer, who has written a helpful little concise theology, said this. He said, the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. I mean, what an encouragement to know that we are not at the mercy of impersonal, arbitrary forces or uncontrolled, random events. There is no such thing as a coincidence. There's no such thing as an accident or destiny or fate or luck or chance. Listen, chance doesn't even exist. Nothing happens by chance. God has determined from eternity past everything that has happened and will happen, and that means that God is never surprised or caught off guard by unexpected developments. That always throws us off, right? Well, this is an unexpected development. Throws us off. God's not surprised by that. There's also no such thing as an unforeseen circumstance to God. He's seen the end from the beginning. Therefore, we can rest assured that no matter what is going on in this world or in our lives, guess what? We are safe in his hands, albeit hidden most of the time. God is providentially ordering the events of our world and our lives in a way that will accomplish in us the greatest good and bring him the greatest glory. I can't think of another doctrine more comforting, more reassuring than God's providence. I mean, it is a glorious truth that, that we as Christians can put our faith and hope in. Let me just close by reading for you the words of Spurgeon. And this is what he wrote about Romans 8.28. For God works all things together for good, right? To those who love him are called according to his purpose. This is what he wrote. C.H. Spurgeon. Upon some points, a believer is absolutely sure. He knows, for instance, that God sits in the stern sheets of the vessel when it rocks most. In other words, he's on the boat. You're in the middle of a storm, freaking out. We know he's on the boat with us. He believes that an invisible hand is always on the world's tiller. He's got his hand on the rudder, 
and that wherever providence may drift, Jehovah steers it. That reassuring knowledge prepares him for everything. He looks over the raging waters and sees the spirit of Jesus treading the billows, and he hears a voice saying, it is I, be not afraid. He knows, too, that God is always wise, and knowing this, he's confident that there can be no accidents, no mistakes, that nothing can occur which ought not to arise. He can say, if I should lose all I have, it is better that I should lose than have if God so wills. The worst calamity is the wisest and the kindest thing that could befall to me if God ordains it. Wow. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. The Christian does not merely hold this as a theory, but he knows it as a matter of fact. Everything has worked for good as yet. The poisonous drugs mixed in fit proportions have worked the cure. The sharp cuts of the lancet have cleansed out the proud flesh and facilitated the healing. Every event as yet has worked out the most divinely blessed results. And so believing that God rules all, that he governs wisely, that he brings good out of evil, the believer's heart is assured and he is enabled to calmly meet each trial as it comes. Do you want to be able to do that? To to meet each trial calmly (laughs) as it comes? The believer can, in the spirit of true resignation, pray, send me what thou wilt, my God, so long as it comes from you, Never came there an ill portion from your table to any of your children. Amen? That is providence. And that's what we're going to be studying for the next 10 weeks. Now, there's one more resource resource that I want to recommend to you. And I saved the biggest and the best for last. How's that? For an encyclopedic treatment of the doctrine of providence. This is John Piper's latest release. They're calling this his magnum opus, his life work. And he said that for 25 years, he's always wanted to write a book on the sovereignty of God in all things. And as he studied it out, he decided, you know what? I need to call this providence because providence is the working out of God's sovereignty. And so... He wrote a 700-page book <laughs> about providence. And uh, you can get your copy on Amazon.com. We don't have them in the Resource Center. Um, but anyway, I would highly recommend this. Um, this is probably John Piper's wheelhouse. Uh, what I mean by that is he's probably one of the men that God has used more than any other to help me come to grips with the sovereignty of God over all things. And so uh, just wanted you to know this is available and uh, you would do well to get it. And you might not read it from cover to cover, unless you're crazy. Um, but you could use it like an encyclopedia and look up in the index or the table of contents the subject you're curious about. How does providence intersect, for example, with my sin and my sinful choices? Where is God's providence in my sinful choices? There's a chapter about that. Very interesting. So I'm excited to, get, to dive into this book with you all. And uh, come back next week, and we're going to tackle chapter one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, giving us uh, the book of Esther, for preserving uh, it for us uh, in your word so that we could study it and learn more about your sweet providence in, in all of our lives. And so, Lord, would you help us as we 
walk our way through this uh, spirit-inspired story, that it would have a life-changing effect on each one of us. And that, Lord, we would be more God-entranced people, that we would see you everywhere and in everything that happens because we ultimately know that you are in charge of it all and in control of it all. Help us to make application of this message in our lives even this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.